This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 13th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, I talk with freelance science writer Krista Lestay-Lasserre about the role of scientists at the Notre Dame Cathedral, both in the restoration of the structure and for the investigation of its past. Then we have researcher Felipe Carroz. He's going to talk about how our skin forms a tough barrier against the outside world and how this barrier's formation depends on phase separation, a very hot area of cell biology. First up today, we have freelance science writer Krista Lestay-Lasserre. She wrote a feature this week on the scientists leading Notre Dame's restoration after the April 2019 fire and their use of the fire to probe the mysteries of this cathedral. Hi, Krista. Hi, Sarah. Okay. The way you describe the scientific work that's going on at the cathedral after the fire, it can almost be broken down into these categories by material, stone, glass, lead, and wood. Each has experts. It has its own challenges and its own mysteries. All of the teams that are working together on the restoration, on these different categories of materials, are working together um, in the same organization. Can you tell us a little bit more about this group? They're all working out of the same laboratory, which is a part of the Ministry of Culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your description of it in the story was pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, it's it's really phenomenal. It's so French. <laughs> they have a wing of a 17th century castle. You have these austere iron gates that lead up to it, and you just have no idea of the treasures that are hidden in that area. Let's take this material by material. First, stone. Obviously, the Notre Dame is made of stone, wood, and some other pieces. And I was really surprised by how dangerous getting the stone out of the building after the fire was. The researchers actually had to use robots to get the stones out. They did. You've got this vault that's a teeter on collapse because they have no idea how much forces have changed. They've absorbed water, but they've also been affected by heat. So if there are some stones that have suffered some heat damage, they might crumble. At the same time, there are also some stones that are just dangling from the ceiling and they might might just drop at any moment. Everything is really delicately balanced. And you've got a 30 meter drop. That's a hundred foot drop coming down. Some of these stones are actually taken back to this French chateau from this French castle. A lot of them end up stored outside the cathedral waiting to be put back in. But 
they do take some back to the French castle, right? Most of them are stored in these tents that are all in front of the cathedral and they're sorting them. And it's just an immense amount of work of, of sorting these because they're not going to lose anything. Anything that's about more than five centimeters long is going to be put back into the cathedral. The ones that they take back to study, they, what they're looking for is to see different signs of heat damage. So that can be seen through, for example, oxidation which can change the color of the stones, but that's only a guide, but it's still a pretty good guide. According to how much heat it got, you can go from red to black and then kind of surprisingly then to white. And when it gets to white, then you know that it's really bad because it's just powder. They also are doing some testing on the water absorptions. These stones have absorbed quite a bit of water. They can gain up to 30% of their weight. The water came from trying to put the fire out? Yes, the water came from the firefighters hosing down the cathedral. And it's taking a very, very long time for them to dry. So the fire was April the 15th. And as of today, it's still drying. They're still losing weight to water uh, evaporation? Yes, they're still losing weight. Oh, that's amazing. So what can they do with this information about how the stones change color? How is it helpful to know that this color change corresponds to how much heating went on with the stones? What they really need to know is the detail of which stones are likely to be damaged enough to need to be changed, because there are some that may, may not have fallen, but they may have been so damaged that they're not going to be able to hold up the structure correctly anymore and that this delicate balance of force is going to be upset. They also need to know how long it's going to take for everything to dry because there's no point in testing, for example, the mortar between the stones until everything's finished drying because the mortar is going to continue to be affected by the changing forces. Right. Another dangerous aspect of this work is lead. Notre Dame had a lot of lead, tons of lead in the roof and spire, and it was melted by the fire. It was also thrown out into aerosol particles. A yellow cloud escaped and it coated everything inside the building and possibly some of the nearby neighborhoods. What do we know about the contamination in the surrounding city? We actually don't know that much about the lead contamination in the city. There was a lot of yeah. uh, fear at the beginning. Uh, Parisians were very worried, and rightfully so, because lead toxicity can be pretty bad for children, and there are a lot of children living in Paris. But the scientists here at this laboratory have found out that the vast majority of that roof did not go up into uh, smoke or a cloud. It melted. The melting point you know, is 300 degrees Celsius, the evaporation point is 1,700 degrees Celsius. We didn't get anywhere near that. After about 600 degrees Celsius, then it created these little micro nodules that went up into the air, an aerosol. So really a small portion of, of the roof did go up. Quite a bit of it actually fell down into the cathedral itself. Some did go outside and it floated away. You can see it in the, the videos of this uh, yellow mm. cloud that went along the Seine. But the scientists think that Probably much of it did not drop down onto the ground or into the Seine River, but just uh, kept going, following the Seine uh, further downstream. So it may not have ended up in Paris at all. We don't know where it is yet, but the researchers are looking for it. Right. They're going to be testing different areas of the city, trying to see if there's a signature of the Notre Dame lead there. They've been able to test the lead from the roof to be able to get uh, the isotopes. This has allowed them to have an isotope signature. 
So when they find lead, and there's lead all over Paris, you can't just a sample say, oh, that came from Notre Dame. You don't know. But because of the isotopic signature, then you can. So they're trying to test that to find out if the lead ended up in those areas. What about the lead levels inside the cathedral? Are they a big concern for the researchers working there now? Because of the high amounts of lead in the cathedral, there is a great concern with the work safety agencies. So they are requiring very, very strict procedures on lead safety. First of all, access is extremely limited, just the the bare minimum people that are allowed to get in. The only access in is to go through a shower cabin. They have to take off all their clothes. They have to wear these paper clothing, paper underwear and paper socks. You're allowed to stay for a maximum of two and a half hours. And the whole time that you're there, you have to wear these masks that are really heavy and uncomfortable and they have breathing assistance. And it's not just the people, it's also any equipment they bring in. Anything they bring in has to be either destroyed or washed thoroughly on the way out. Because as they leave the cathedral, after two and a half hours, they take all of their clothing off and they go through the shower and anything they brought with them also has to go through the shower and wash. (laughs) With all this protective gear, all this rigorous cleanliness routine that they have to go through, it shouldn't be surprising that most of the work that they're doing right now is to get this lead out of there. The lead is not being removed yet because the initial step is finding out how to get the lead off without destroying this 850-year-old monument and all of its uh, precious art inside. And this is an extremely expensive project to begin with. And they're trying to be as cost-efficient as possible. So cost is really an issue. They can't just go in with uh, the most expensive kind of equipment either. And they need something that is can be explained to the people that are going to be doing it because the, the people who are cleaning it are not going to be the scientists. There's going to be a company that's going to be brought in and they're going to be technicians that are going to come in and clean. You have to be able to explain to them a protocol that can be consistent. You have to be able to say, wipe at a medium amount of pressure four times with this wipe. And so they're looking at ways that are preserving the the surface, which means that they have to watch out for any kind of chemicals because the chemicals could react with the surfaces. They're concerned Mm -hmm. about the stones. They don't want to have mineral in in anything that they use because it could also... Uh, react with the minerals. They don't want to have any kind of acid that could react to the paint that's in the the stained glass. Have they had any success in finding a cleaning solution that works on these surfaces or are they going surface, surface type by surface type? They were hoping to find something that's more or less usable throughout all the kinds of surfaces. So the teams have been working together uh, to try to find a solution, but sometimes it, it doesn't work. But one thing that they have found is that if it's a smooth surface, like the lead or much of the iron, if the iron isn't corroded, the waxed wood surfaces and the glass, then they can just take a cotton pad and they put demineralized water on that and they just wipe it down. But then again, it's a question of the pressure and the amount of time. So they've created a protocol using those materials. This is such a big place though. It is. go over with well, that's Basically why the makeup pads. <laughs> well, that's why they're not going to use that everywhere. Uh, anyway, it won't work on the stone because the stones are too porous, uh, or not all the stone, some of the stone, it won't work. So they're having to use vacuuming and they're using quite a bit of vacuuming. There's just a shop vac with a special filter in it. They also have some other options where they're, the way they described it to me sounded like silly putty. It's wet when they put it on, so they paint it on and it, then it dries and then they can pull it off. And it takes the lead with it. And it takes the lead with it. Well, as these teams work out how to clean up and restore the cathedral, 
Some other scientists are using this lull, this tourist-free time to investigate some of its history, you know, to better understand how it was built and the world around it as it was being built. For example, the origins of the wood and the stones and how they fit together. What do we know about where the wooden parts of the cathedral came from? The researchers are looking at some specific details within the wood that will give them hints. They explained to me they're kind of working like a funnel. They've got, you know, the archives that give them a little bit of information about where this may mm. come from and then narrowing it down to different spaces. And where they are now is testing what the tree was uh, consuming essentially through its roots. It's a chemical analysis of what uh, these trees had been uh, absorbing from the substrates. I was surprised about that. I said, well, you know, it's been it's been uh, 800 years or 900 right. years. It's not going to be the same thing over there. And they said, oh, actually, yes, it is, because these are oak trees and they dig really, really deep down into the ground. And at that depth, nothing's changed. One other thing you mentioned in the story that was pretty amazing to me was the idea that some of these pieces of wood, some of these trees might have been purposefully grown to be made part of the cathedral. Yes, and that's a really exciting concept, isn't it? Because these trees were 100 years old when they were cut down, which means if somebody was planning, <laughs> they were planning on on building a cathedral with them, then that means that it was several generations in advance that they said, we're going to start growing trees to build a cathedral one day. What are some of the indications that that might have been the case? Well, they noticed that, that all of the beams are, they grew in a way that made them very long and narrow and dense. They were in a dense and competitive environment. And this made them think, maybe this is part of what they call silviculture, which is this uh, idea of planting and reserving a particular area of a forest for the purpose of building a monument. So I visited Notre Dame in 2001, a very long time ago. But I remember my tour guide saying, this cathedral was built on top of earlier religious buildings, earlier churches. And now I'm kind of feeling lied to because in your story, you know, from what you write, it doesn't sound like these early buildings have really been verified. Yes, and I was surprised about that as well. I understood that, of course, uh, it was built over previous churches, but not everybody agrees with that. So looking under the cathedral would certainly answer that question. They would like to use ground-penetrating radar to test uh, underground. There's no basement of Notre Dame. There's no crypt. So this would actually be on the just the ground surface, the same surface that you walk in when you visit the cathedral. They would be running this uh, GPR over that surface to see what's underneath. It hasn't been approved yet, but it's something that they would really like to do. And an added benefit of that is that if they need to construct a new scaffolding that they want to set on the floor instead of on the walls, then they would be able to know what's under there and know how much how much force it could hold. Mm, very interesting. You end your story with the impact of the fire on people, how traumatic it's been for people who are there, people who watched the burning, and how this has changed the way tourists spend time in that part of the city. How are researchers looking at that the researchers are planning to speak to different groups of people, tourists, also people who, till the fire, were still using the cathedral as their religious home. Um, it was still a very active church, despite being a tourist place. They want to speak to them and see how they've been affected. They're also very interested in the guides, because the guides are very attached to the cathedral. They're all 
volunteers and are passionate about the cathedral. And they have, these people, they can't let go of their work at Notre Dame. So they are continuing online. And they also want to see how it's affecting the tourists. They still come. People are very attached to that. And it, it's an interesting phenomenon to see how many people across the entire planet are affected by this one monument. All right, I'm going to ask you the toughest question there is, Krista. Okay. How long is it going to take to restore the cathedral? Five years. They have to finish it within five years. That is what uh, President Macron has decided. And everybody is working on that particular deadline. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all of the renovation will be finished. There are ways to be able to open it to visitors without it being completely renovated yet. Okay. All right, Krista, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. It was good to talk to you. Krista Lestay-Lasserre is a freelance science writer based in Paris. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with researcher Felipe Carroz about the role of phase separation in the formation of skin. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. The paper we're going to talk about today covers a lot. We're going to get to talk about phase separation, which is a really hot area of biology right now. We're also going to talk about how our skin gets so tough. And we're going to talk about how phase separation is involved in that process. We're also going to talk about a sensor for phase separation in cells. And finally, we're going to bring it all the way back to skin disease. Felipe Queiroz is here to talk us through all of these things. Hi, Felipe. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited. We actually haven't talked about phase separation on the podcast before. Wow, that's crazy. How is that possible? It's kind of sad. So liquid, liquid phase separation in a cell. This is something that is constantly being compared to oil and vinegar. Can you give us a general picture of how liquid, liquid phase separation works in a cell and how it's kind of infiltrated all these different areas of biology? It's a process that has been known for a long, long time, mm-hmm. but it was only really in the last 10 years that thanks to really pioneering work of Cliff Brownwin and Tony Hyman, got the attention that it deserved. The idea that biomolecules within the cell have this intrinsic ability to mix or demix. The molecules go from being happy together to saying, no, I want to be in my own group of like Mm -hmm. type molecules, basically from their own compartments. And Mm -hmm. the surprising thing about these compartments is that they're very dynamic. They're not having uh, lipid membranes around them. And because they're so dynamic, they essentially fuse and behave as if they were liquids. And so Mm -hmm. the material properties of these kinds of compartments really have received a lot of attention in the last few years because people started realizing that these unique liquid-like properties would also have implications for biology. Right. I'm, I'm picturing a lava lamp right now. Things are kind of liquids, but they're separate from each other. So what are some of the processes that phase separation has been implicated in? Can you give us a few? The most historic one, perhaps, is the nucleolus. This mm-hmm. structure within the nucleus that is really a very, very essential part of the cell. 
and people knew that it didn't have membranes, but the underlying sort of biophysical understanding of how that was possible, or even more importantly, what the implications of that really were, uh, is something that was basically overlooked for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. Well, here in this paper, we're going to talk about the role of phase separation in the formation of the layers of our skin. So let's just talk at the basic level about how our skin has different layers and how those cells get to where they need to be. I conducted this work in the group of Elaine Fuchs, who is one of the leaders in the world on skin biology. And she spent most of her career understanding how stem cells begin to detach from a specific membrane that allows them to reside at the base of the skin. And as they move upwards towards the skin surface, they start acquiring unique structures. Why everyone has, has heard at one point or another that the surface of the skin is made of dead cells. Right. And so as these stem cells detach and move toward the surface, they actually eventually undergo a really unique program of cell death in which they get rid of all their organelles. And this has been known for a long, long time because whenever you take a look, say, through electron microscopy, these cells at the surface, I mean, are extremely flat and thin. And they pile up to form this layer structure that is this surface of the skin that is actually super important, perhaps the most important in establishing the barrier properties of the skin. So the ability of the skin to prevent the loss of water from our bodies or to prevent the entry of pathogens into our bodies is because of this layer of dead cells on the surface. Uh, we call them squames just because of their scale type morphology. And that means like a scale. It's Latin for scale. Yeah, like, you know, like in a fish. So we have this very tough barrier layer made of dead cells, but they're dead on purpose. It's not like the body's throwing them away. It's exactly. stripping them of everything unessential, making them really tough, binding them all together and, and protecting the body with them. I always like to, to make the point that, and I think you said it quite right, it's done for a purpose so that mm -hmm. the cells on the surface actually have a very well-defined structure so that the skin actually has very unique mechanical properties. It has to be tough. It has to be flexible, but it also has to be impermeable to all of these pathogens and molecules that cannot go out of our bodies or get into our bodies. Right. So this process of the creation of the skin cells, this is where you found that phase separation was actually really important. What are the oil and vinegar in this process, in this scenario? Where is phase separation happening and, and what are the major players? What we found was that phase separation was playing a critical role in the step right before this major transformation. And so when the cell goes from being a normal looking cell with a nucleus and all other membrane bound organelles to becoming this flat dead squam, the sort of star player that is driving this process is this family of proteins uh, known as filagrins. Filagrins, I got it. They are the ones that have evolved to the mix from the cytoplasm. Mm -hmm. So in this context, the cytoplasm will become the oil. And then we had the vinegar being filagrins, and they form their own droplets. And they're highly abundant. When we say, you know, these are separating out, they're forming these droplets, what does that functionally do? What does it mean for the cell that these proteins, this family of proteins, are all getting together in separating, they're demixing from the cytoplasm? That's the biggest question that not only we had as we ponder on these issues, but really one that pervades 
anyone thinking about phase separation right. in biology. It's striking to see these processes, but it's very difficult to answer the underlying questions. There are many potential explanations. And truthfully, the explanation often, I think, has multiple facets. Right. There are a lot of things that could be happening. Just one, um, certain molecules could be hiding away in the droplets until the right time, till they're needed. What other options are there? Yeah, you can imagine that you can protect things from being exposed at the wrong time. You can accumulate things that you need for later. You could mm -hmm. concentrate reagents that you need to speed up chemical reactions. We now have begun to think more and more, and particularly in the context of our work, about just biophysical consequences. What we have in this case is these structures that are fairly large in the order of microns. So think something that is almost as large as the nucleus. And suddenly these structures can occupy a significant portion of the cell volume. So now we have to think about essentially crowding. So what is the consequence of that? We now have come to understand that as we change these crowding effects, other biomolecules in the cell also change their behavior. They're taking up space. They're taking up space. They're stretching out things. They're pushing other things together into a crowd. It's more of a physical thing than a chemical interaction. Well, I'm saying both are at play. And it depends ah. on the scenario. In our case, in the skin, we were uniquely puzzled by the abundance of our compartments. The kind of abundance that we see for these liquids is unusual. And so in our case, it was very obvious to start thinking about biophysical consequences. What happens when you disrupt this process, when you prevent this phase separation from happening in the skin cells that you looked at? We had this unique ability to wipe out these filigrees from the mouse skin. And what we saw was that when we removed these filigrees, there was no longer phase separation happening. When we did that, this program in the skin of cells being able to form the surface layers of dead cells was affected. Specifically, we saw that the organelles that had to be lost were not being lost as fast. And more importantly, that the process had lost its environmental responsiveness. Huh, so what do you skin, mean by that? The skin barrier is unique in that the skin evolves according to the environment. If you place yourself in an environmental extreme, like a very dry environment, for instance, your skin has to get better at preventing water loss. And so how does it do that? It has to somehow couple with environmental signals. What we discovered was that phase separation is actually a unique mechanism by which the skin is environmentally responsive. And so what we saw was that when we removed these compartments, the process of triggering this squame formation was disrupted. It was no longer coupled to specifically a signal that we discovered, which is a pH shift intracellularly in these cells. The pH varies. The deeper you go into the body, there's a change in pH. We knew, and it's been known for a long time, that the surface of the skin is acidic. What we didn't know is how this extracellular pH on the skin surface translated to intracellular pH changes because these, mm -hmm. these droplets are within the cell. So we deployed some pH reporters that allowed us to essentially for the first time see how as cells approach the surface, their intracellular pH change very rapidly. And it's specifically at the exact time when the cells had to transform from these normal looking cells into these squames. Now, this was coupled to these liquid-like droplets. The liquid-like droplets we showed are uniquely evolved to be pH responsive. And so if the droplets were present, when the pH shifts, these squames were formed. But when we depleted the droplets, 
the pH shift no longer actuated the process. So it really showed a link between the dynamics of those liquids, their pH responsiveness, and the ability to form skin in an environmentally sort of trigger manner. One thing we definitely need to touch on before I let you go is the fact that part of this paper involves the development of a sensor for phase separation. So can you talk a little bit about how that works? We've gotten really good as a field in looking at phase separation in artificial systems, but we really just wanted to, for the first time, be able to do these experiments in the actual tissue. The question for us was really, is this actually happening in the skin? Mm -hmm. So what we were able to do was create this new strategy where we introduce into these transgenic mice fluorescent proteins that by themselves do not undergo phase separation, but they're designed to sense if anyone in their surroundings is undergoing phase separation. Hmm. When these mice stem cells start differentiating, the phase separation sensor is reporting that nothing is happening. That's what we see. But when these cells first express the proteins, these filagrins, these sensors become co-opted to engage in interactions with those filagrins. And in doing so, allows us to visualize the location and the material properties of those emerging droplets. The beauty of the approach is that we don't have to modify filagrins. We knew that whenever we modified those endogenous proteins, say to afluorescence through fusion with a fluorescent protein, we knew the biophysical properties are being affected. You could end up modifying them so they don't form droplets anymore. Exactly. Or you could enhance the formation of those droplets. Mm-hmm. And perhaps more difficult to understand, you could change the material properties of those droplets. Huh, so, so they're you know, stickier to each other. Or- yeah. They're no longer liquids, they become solids. So really having tools to non-disruptively assess phase separation, I think that's something that we need to move forward as a field with. Let's circle back to disease now. Is there any indication that the proteins that you do know are involved in the droplets are defective in certain disease states? Yes, that's actually kind of what drove us throughout the process. I mean, this was a lengthy project, but the reason why we're so committed is because we knew mutations in these proteins are the strongest predictor of skin barrier disorders, particularly atopic dermatitis and the most severe forms of atopic dermatitis. People have been very excited about this for over a decade, but the function of this family of proteins has been completely unknown, but no one ever thought, I mean, to our knowledge at least, that the functional state of these proteins had to do with these granules. So the granules themselves have been known forever. Right. So you can look at a microscope, you can see them, you don't know what's in them. You know this protein is really important according to the genetics of the disease. Exactly. Now you know, you put them together. It's, it's really crazy because the genetics of it kind of developed over the last 10 years. But once the studies started to pile up, I mean, it was very clear, this protein was essentially perfectly linked with the disease. But without a good understanding of the underlying biology and what it was doing, basically, I think we we really haven't been able to make progress in terms of linking potential therapies to the genetic defects. Now that we understand what these proteins are doing, it opens up the window for thinking about, okay, well, we know this is defective. It is because of phase separation process. What can we do about it? Right. How can we target now phase separation as a way to treat the disorders? It's not an easy question to answer, but now we have a handle and a new direction. And that's quite exciting to us. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Felipe. Thank you for talking to us.
Felipe Queiroz is an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology and Emory University. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.